When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hi folks, be sure to visit my website at dr-history.com for a short personal video message, to listen to the latest stories, and to leave a comment. Good morning, doctor. Good morning, Zeb. How are you, my friend? I'm great. You know, driving out here, I see the wheat's coming up green, the, the hay's coming up green. It's just beautiful time of the year. Absolutely. Um, your Vincent Van Gogh, uh, what do you call that? Not a mustache, uh, but kind of a goatee? It's a professorish looking. A professorish? Yes. <laughs> what are we going to talk about? Oh, you got thank yous first, don't you? Know, you know, actually, I don't have any this week, oh. so didn't hear from anybody this week, so anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, what are we going to talk about well, today? I'm going to take this from a book called The Cowboys. Oh, See that? Yes. And we're going to talk about the cattle industry, kind of the waning years of the cattle industry. So, Well, now, how do you end. discern and decide what are waning years? Well, l- ask me that when we get done. Here. Okay. <laughs> In other words, I don't know. Okay. Okay. So we're going to start out 1885. You know, the open range cattle business had kind of reached its height. Uh-huh. Uh, millions of dollars had been invested in raising cattle on the Great Plains. Uh, a lot of the capital actually came from England and Scotland. In fact, there were investors from over there that invested in cattle ranches over here and in some cases never even saw their own cattle ranches. You know, and what you said, they made a movie similar to what you're talking about with Jimmy Stewart. Remember that movie? It was called The Rare Breed, uh, where they brought over from England a Hereford bull. Oh, yeah. okay. It was just on TV the other night. Okay. Yeah. Well, uh, so yeah, a lot of these guys were from uh, England, Scotland, and yeah. they had good uh, beef cattle over there, too, as well as uh, dairy cows. But, uh, you know, there were huge profits to be made on these beef, uh, and they fed on free grass. The cowboy had become a national figure, but there were some danger signs. Uh, the northern ranges were fully stocked. Some of them were overstocked, and yet even more cattle were being put out on there, and, and the once abundant grasslands could not support all these increasing numbers of livestock. They just kept bringing more and more. Mm-hmm. And now it also included millions of sheep. And you know the conflict there between the cattlemen and the sheep. Oh, yeah. But the cattlemen were producing more beef than the consumers required, and so the price of beef began to fall. And in the newspaper it said, quote, if you have any steers to shed, prepare to shed them now. And that was in uh, the Chicago uh, Daily Journal. 
But uh, during the summer um, of 1885, more than 100,000 cattle were brought into Montana. And there's a guy named Granville Stewart. Now, he was a pioneer rancher in Montana. Mm -hmm. And here's what he said. And by the fall, the ranges were crowded. There was no way of preventing the overstocking of the ranges as they were free to all men and to take big chances for the hope of a large return. Um, So he kind of was seeing the writing on the wall, so to speak. But the beef bonanza had been largely generated by books and journals describing these huge profits to be raised in uh, in raising cattle in the West. And it was shown how a $5 calf could be matured at low cost on this rich grass of the public domain, I mean, free feed, basically, and sold at the end of four years for 40 or $50. So an investment then of, let's say, $5,000 could in four years yield a net gain of $50,000. Mm-hmm. So it sounded really, really good, yeah. you know. Yeah. And so investors poured money into this uh, seemingly lucrative business. In 1883, in Wyoming alone, there were 20 companies were incorporated with a uh, total of $12 million that they had invested in the cattle industry. Wow. And the big cattle companies, however, were they were riding for a fall. They Things weren't going to happen, and which most of them never did recover. Uh-huh. And, you know, then you throw in things like the, the bad winters. And, oh, like you know, in the droughts. Dakotas and that? Right. Yeah. 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 Now, Theodore Roosevelt was one of the many young yep. gentlemen who invested money in the new cow business. But he had more than just a financial interest in raising cattle. He loved the West. You know, we've talked about him. Yes, you he have. loved the West and his people. And he gave his time, his energy into personally supervising his ranching interests. I mean, he became a cowboy uh, and shared the hard life of his hired hands. He worked partners uh, with them. Uh, his period out West coincides with the peak and the ending of the open cattle industry. And, you know, of course, he was born in 1858 in New York uh, to a wealthy family, influential, influential. He went to Harvard, but he loved the cowboy life. He mm-hmm. loved the, the West. Uh, and, you know, it describes him, you know, that he, he says he was neither tall nor handsome, unlike you and I. Well, right? yes. I yeah. mean, you'd uh, have to go a long way to be like you and yeah, I. Well, yeah. yeah. You know, and physically unimpressive, uh-huh. short in stature, which, unfortunately, you and I both fit that one. He <laughs> was kind of... Pudgy. Yeah, well, bad eyesight. Yeah. So oh, he had yeah, to, I heard stories about his eyesight. Yeah, had to wear glasses. Yeah. Uh, it says he was pale and skinny and spoke in a high-pitched voice, but he had a lot of guts. Uh, well, what are his good attributes? Well, we're into that. <laughs> he had a lot of energy, and he was willing to learn. Okay. So he was kind of a humble, yeah. you know, he was willing yeah. to learn. Yeah. Uh, in, in September of 1883, he visited Dakota for the first time to hunt buffalo and other big game. And while there, he brought uh, he bought the Maltese Cross Ranch. Uh-huh. You've heard of that. Yeah. And some seven miles from the town of Medora. Yep. And he stopped it. That right now is one of the top tourist attraction towns in the West. Medora. Medora. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, And he he bought 400 cattle. Yep. But uh, tragedy kind of struck right about then. Both his wife and his mother died. And he decided uh, investing in the cat that... to have his time in investing in the cattle industry uh, in the Dakotas. So it was kind of a, an escape, I guess you would say, from, yeah. from the tragedy of losing his wife and his mother. And uh, it's, uh, he quotes this. He says, it was still the Wild West in those days. 
And in his autobiography, he wrote, quote, The far west of Owen Wister's stories and Frederick Remington's drawings, the west of the Indian and the buffalo hunter, the soldier and the cowpuncher, it was a land of scattered ranches, of herds of longhorn cattle, and of reckless riders who, unmoved, looked in the eyes of life or death. And he went on as a rancher, he said, uh, in this new life, quote, For every day I've been here, I have had my hands full. The cattle have done well, and I regard the outlook for making the business a success as being very hopeful. This winter, I lost about 25 head from wolves, cold, etc. The others are in admirable shape, and I have about 130, 155 calves. I shall put out put on 1,000 more cattle, and she'll make it my regular business. So he was really getting into this. I don't want to get ahead of you, but didn't he lose the Maltese Ranch because of a severe winter? Um, I might get to that. Okay. Let's see what happens here. Um, I'm sorry. uh, We'll see. Okay. (laughs) So here we move ahead. Uh, Summer of 1884, Roosevelt uh, established another ranch called the Elkhorn Mm -hmm. on the Little Missouri River, some 35 miles north of Medora. Uh, familiar with that? I am. And then he put two trusted foremen in charge, and by 1886, his cattle numbered about 5,000 head. And he was what he calls co-captain in the spring roundup of that year. And he says, quote, I have been on the roundup for a fortnight. Uh, he wrote this to his family, and he says, and really enjoyed the work greatly. We breakfast at 3 every morning oh, and, and work from 16 to 18 hours a day counting night guard, so I get pretty sleepy, but I, but I feel strong as a bear. Uh, and this is kind of interesting. He says, uh, although he was liable to issue orders in strange to cowboys' ears, such as, quote, hasten forward quickly there. <laughs> you Can you imagine if somebody went up on the roundup up in the South Hills or wherever and said, hasten, hey, hasten quickly forward there? quickly there. <laughs> They turn around and say, where is this guy from? That's not all they'd say. But, you know, he was wearing glasses, he was a dude, and he became a a very capable cattle boss, and he won the respect and loyalty of his cowhands and his neighbors. So, you know, he he fit right in, I guess, as much as he could. When you leave, I'm going to tell you to hasten forward quickly there. (laughs) To get home, right? Yeah. and, you know, on one occasion, Roosevelt captured at gunpoint three men who had stolen his boat. In 1884, he his was elected chairman of the Little Missouri Stockmen's Association and in 1886 became its president. So he rose in the ranks uh, of respect from, you know, his neighbors, his friends, and it was in the Cattlemen's Association. So, you know, I, th- I think he was a, a good, you know, he learned from, yeah. from the cowboys yeah. what to do. But, you know, the years of the cattle kingdom were coming to an end. More and more homesteaders were moving into the open ranges, and they wanted their rightful share of this big country. And they came primarily to cultivate the land and settle with their families, and they were encouraged in this. And he said, or Abraham Lincoln said this, quote, I am in favor uh, of settling the wild lands of the West into small parcels so that every poor man may have a home. Well, you can see what's head, what we're headed for right here. Yeah. 
And on 20th May 1862, President Lincoln signed the Homestead Act, which allowed any adult citizen or alien immigrant who was head of a family on payment of a $10 registration fee Mm. to claim 160 acres, which is a quarter section um, of surveyed and unappropriated public land. And after residing upon and cultivating the land for five continuous years, to receive full title to the land on payment of a small further fee. So that's kind of the gist of the of the Homestead Act. Boy, would that be nice today. Oh, yeah. You know, 160 acres. Oh, and, yeah. You know, but, you know, the cattlemen, uh, they watched the coming of the, and you know what this is called, the nester. Yep. The homesteader. Uh, into the public grasslands. And, you know, with each passing year, the cowman saw the farms. Uh, they started to be enclosed by barbed wire fences, and they crept farther and farther westward into the cattle ranges, and things got ugly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was violence between the nesters and the cattlemen. That's right. Uh, again and again, this you know, the little nester was driven off. His fences were cut. His crops and buildings destroyed. But the homesteader with the law and numbers on his side, he always returned to take up the struggle. And the open range that stretched from Texas to Dakota was destined to become the farmer's domain. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it had to happen, right? Yeah. I mean, you had all these people that just wanted to raise a family. Right. And they weren't going to have... 10 or 20 or 30,000 acres of of, uh, grassland for the cattle. So it had to come from somewhere. So the coming of the homesteader forced the cattlemen to acquire proper title of land that they had by occupation. And a popular device was to uh, get cowboys to homestead a quarter section, usually on a riverbank, then sell and sign it over to the cattle boss. Hmm. So the cattlemen kind of were sneaking around yeah. the lodge. You see what I'm saying? Well, so, they didn't break it, though. No, they didn't. Um, and so, you know, they might have 20 uh, cow hands, and yeah. they'd have them go get 160 acres and then sell it back to the rancher. Kind of shrewd. A, a little bit, you know. And so by homesteading a tract that controlled access to water, they got some of the best range. And when the nesters began fencing their lands, uh, the big ranchers also fenced off their range. And this led to huge areas of public domain being illegally enclosed by cattle companies because of loopholes in the law. Uh And so here we go with, you know, the wire. The homesteaders, uh, you know, they cut illegal fences, uh, an action that resulted in conflict and bloodshed. You know, people got killed and shot. Yes, yeah, they that's did. That's just the way it happened. Yeah. So, anyway, uh, there were three technical inventions that were instru- instrumental in changing the nature and the use of the open range. Number one was the chilled steel plow. Okay, the plow. You know, before was, they had wooden right. plows. Right. So, the steel plow, the windmill... And barbed wire. Barbed wire. I knew about barbed wire, but I hadn't thought about the plow or the windmills. Right. But the steel plow first produced in 1868 by James Oliver. Do you remember the Oliver tractors? Uh, I used to have one. Did you? Yeah. Okay. I drove one for years raking hay, an old Oliver. But uh, And he, he was out of South Bend, Indiana, and he provided the Pioneer Farms with the first implement capable of cutting this tough prairie sod of the western plains because uh, you know you can imagine after years it was it had to be pretty tough oh, to yeah. plow oh yeah you know 
But uh, anyway, uh, and then surface water was precious, and it was, of course, coveted on the Great Plains. And whoever had the water, you know, that was they they uh, they were fortunate. And where surface water was scarce, wells were sunk to tap the underground springs and reservoirs. Yeah, but windmills were really an asset to the cattlemen, though. They were. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so they powered by the constantly blowing winds, and they were erected to pump the water to the surface. And it is claimed that cattlemen were the first to employ the windmill pump. Right. So, you know, we always think of the the farmer, you know, and 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 of course they did too. But the cattlemen were the first, so they could have right. the cattle range farther, farther, and farther. But then wire fencing was the technical solution in terrain where the natural fence materials of wood and stone were scarce. In 1874, Joseph F. Glidden, an Illinois farmer, patented his particular type of homemade barbed wire that proved the most practical and effective of the many types that had been devised. And I've seen that. I've got a book that shows probably a dozen different kinds of Barbed wire. My father-in-law used to have a complete board about, uh, I'll have to ask Deanne, but I think it was about three, four feet tall, and it had all the historic pieces of barbed wire. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, you know, uh, his improvement, he improved on the previous types uh, in a kind of... Some of of that stuff was pretty wicked. Oh, yeah. It would tear you apart. You know, uh, but he had a, a special barbed spur twisted through the double strand wire. And, of course, the initial use of the word barbed, or, of course, out here we say bob, right? (laughs) Yeah, the bob wire, you know, as it was called, uh, by farmers and small ranches to protect their privately owned land. And this kind of angered the free-ranging cattlemen who called, they called it, quote, devil's rope. Yeah. Well, you know, Zeb, you've you've seen horses and cows caught in barbed wire. It's uh, not fun to have. You know, I had a, I had a horse get kind of caught yeah. up and yeah. he, he he came out of it but it was a doctoring for quite a while absolutely but nevertheless the cowmen adopted barbed wire fencing uh, which made it possible to keep cattle separate from uh, so that they could selectively breed the stringy longhorns which gave way to the fine beef cattle like the herfords and the durhams which came from england yep. and the barbed wire provided the cowboy with a new duty uh riding the fence line to make sure the fences That was a job nobody wanted. Yeah, because summer and winter, you yeah. were out there. Yeah. And they now spent much of their time patrolling miles and miles of this line to keep it in repair. Well, the chill still... Can you plow- imagine doing that job day after day after day? <laughs> oh, and you'd be camping out there because yeah. you couldn't come back but to the ranch. But just riding a fence line and just looking at a fence all the time? Right, and you'd have to be carrying your gear. Oh, you yeah. Know? Yeah. But the plow, the windmill, the barbed wire, uh, the open-range cattle industry was kind of doomed. And the end came uh, with, this, as I mentioned, this terrible winter of 1886, mm-hmm. 87. And then little rain fell during the summer of 1886. Grazing was poor on the ground, you know. The cattle continued to arrived from the south, and the fate of the stockmen depended on a mild winter, which they didn't get. And when they got this really bad winter, uh, and and then they had several in a row right. of devastating winter right. blizzards, and that struck in November. Uh, the Dakota Bismarck newspaper described it as, quote, in many respects, the worst on record. Right. And uh, on the 9th of January, 1887, uh, 
It says it, quote, snows steadily for 16 hours. And this is written by Granville Stewart of Montana. And he says, the thermometer dropped to 22 degrees below zero. And on the night of January 15th, stood at 46 degrees below zero. And there was 16 inches of snow on the flat, on the level. Oh, my. It was as though the Arctic regions had pushed down and, and, and enveloped us. And then, of course, the cattle drifted before the storm, and these fat steers froze to death along with their, uh, uh, you know, their calves. And he said, we kept plenty of men on the range to look after the cattle as best they could, keeping them back from the rivers and out of air holes and open channels in the ice, helping them out of drifts and keeping them in what shelter the cut banks and ravines offered. And that's from uh, this Granville Stewart. Uh, a guy named Teddy Blue was one of Stewart's cowboys who braved the blizzards, hell without the heat, he called it, to try and help the freezing cattle. They drifted, as he said, like gray ghosts with icicles hanging from their muzzles, eyes and ears. And then the cowboy, dressed in as much clothing as they could uh, carry, uh, the cowboys rode the fury of the white storm, and many of them perished. So a lot of the cowboys died yeah. out there. And so, they didn't have the modern-type no. clothing for winter like they would no. do now. And then it says, no sooner yeah. had a blizzard spent itself than it was followed by another one. And the ground was th- uh, covered by a thick crust of ice that prevented the cattle from getting to the grass. And so they just died by the thousands. Yeah, it was you know? a mess. Uh, but these bad winters, and uh, I've read stories of where sometimes a horse would actually freeze to death under the cowboy. Yeah, and going back, though, to Teddy Roosevelt, his ranch was in that deep freeze right. back in the Dakotas. Yeah. And when he lost that, then he went to Washington, D.C. and stayed there. Yeah. And uh, the story continues on talking about him and, and his his uh, ranch and stuff. But, you know, I know that's about all the time. There we were before, some tough times back they, in those days. They say they lost from 70 to 80, 75 to 80 percent of the stock. Wow. That during those blizzards wow. and stuff. So, tough time. You know, and here we're praying for a lot more snow and water. And oh, yeah, here we are in a drought. <laughs> right, yeah. right. 